0: Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 16, Overexcitability and Openness to Experience. Hello, happy listeners, and welcome back to Positive Disintegration, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Excited to be
1: here.
0: Overexcited? Overexcited, yes. Because that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? Overexcitabilities and openness to experience. That's right. Our guest
1: today, Sheila Gallagher, is going to talk with us about openness to experience and overexcitability, and so we'll get into that in a few minutes. And I'm really excited to have Sheila with us today because I met her um, almost four years ago at the Dabrowski Congress in 2018, and her work made me feel less alone, gave me hope at a time when I was starting to feel kind of hopeless in my work with Dabrowski's theory. And so um, I am really excited to have this conversation today, and there's just, there's so much to say about Sheila and her work, even beyond this openness to experience and overexcitability stuff. And so we're glad to have you here with us, Sheila.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm hoping to get into this too because like you, Chris, I hope that this sort of speaks to the listeners a little and maybe they'll see themselves a little bit in it and be able to resonate with that. So without further ado, let's bring on our guests. So for our listeners, today's guest is Sheila Gallagher. Sheila's career in gifted education spans 30 years. She's been a teacher, professor, researcher, and writer. Today, she conducts research, provides professional development, and contributes to state and national policy initiatives. She mentions a fourth grade reading program and spends summers with gifted youth at Camp UNASA. Sheila is also the president elect of the NAGC. Welcome to the podcast, Sheila.
2: Thank you so much, Emma, for that nice introduction and Chris for those touching words, I really appreciate it. And I'm excited about tonight's conversation too. I think we've got a little mutual admiration society going, so I'm looking forward to digging in with you tonight. Well, thank you. But you know, before we even go into that topic,
1: we always ask guests when they come on to tell us how they first discovered Dabrowski's theory, and I'm very curious for you, how you did, because I know that you did your master's
2: thesis on overexcitability. Back when there were dinosaurs, yes. (laughs) Um, In fact, uh, I remember when I was introduced to Dabrowski's theory, because I was getting my master's degree with June Maker, and we were all in, our cohort was all in a graduate seminar on some topic that I don't even remember what the topic was, but one day, June came in with this photocopied article in her hand, which had been printed off of a dot matrix printer, if you remember those. And it was a draft Silverman's chapter on Dabrowski. And we read it as part of the seminar. And it was one of those moments when I had that sort of zing of recognition. I had a similar feeling when I read Kretetsky, who wrote about having a mathematical cast of mind and how being a gifted mathematician was in part a function of seeing the world mathematically. And I had a similar response when I read William Perry's work on intellectual and ethical development. It was just sort of a, an immediate connection that helped things make more sense to me. So I was so excited at that time that I approached June along with a classmate of mine, Shirley Sheever, And we said, we really wanna go further into this as part of our master's degrees. And June very generously supported our traveling to the University of Denver to work directly with Linda Silverman and Frank Falk to learn how to score the open-ended overexcitability questionnaire, which was the only thing available at that time uh, so that we could do our master's research. Well, my master's research, I think it was Shirley's PhD research on, um, on Dabrowski. That was fascinating. And it sort of turned my education master's degree into a stealth psychology degree the body of my master's degree was this uh, parallel between Dabrowski and Kohlberg and Maslow.
1: Wow, and you know, it didn't occur to me, I know that paper too from your friend, Shirley, like that, I remember that from
2: Roper Review. So, right, yeah, that totally makes sense now. Oh, yeah. interesting. We each were coders on each other's data. And here we are, all of these years later, still yes. talking about <laughs> over that's cool. Well, and oddly enough, you know, while people, I think, tend to associate me with Dabrowski and I've seen my name referenced in association with it, that's really the only research I did on Dabrowski from then until I did the literature review for Off the Charts.
1: Right, and that Building Bridges chapter and Off the Charts is amazing and wonderful. So that was actually, I think the first place where I read about these connections between openness and overexcitability. And of course, you know, Michael mentioned it in the second edition of Mellow Out too. And so all of those things were in my mind when I first came to all of this. Well, what, one of the things that has brought us together aside from our mutual admiration society is that there's been some controversy in the field of gifted education over the past several years There were two papers that came out in 2016 that basically said that overexcitability and openness to experience were conceptually equivalent and that instead of continuing to study Dabrowski's theory or apply it in the gifted, I should say, that it should be abandoned in favor of the five factor model of personality. And you wrote a paper that came out just last year, and your paper is a beautiful comparison of both overexcitability and openness to experience. You can see what they both are in some detail. And you also have a study that, you know, with data as part of the paper. And so, if you don't mind, We would love it if you could kind of introduce what openness to experience is for our listeners.
2: Let me just rewind a little bit and describe how I got into this, because it was very much through a side door. Um, I had been invited to write a chapter for Off the Charts, and at that time, uh, I thought I would write an article about personal epistemology and giftedness, and that would be how students' interpretation and belief system about what learning is supposed to be like impacts the way they interpret the classroom and the aims of education and what their teachers choose to do with them. Uh, And I think that has important implications for what we do in gifted education. But as I started doing the background research on epistemology and measured intelligence, I found this tsunami of research on openness to experience and intelligence. And I thought, oh, wow, well, this is important. And we need to bring this into our conversation because it's so pervasive in the field of psychology right now, at least in the field of personality psychology. And so I started gathering it together. And of course, I started researching backwards into the origins. And I ran into Robert McRae's original research on openness to experience. And when you read that description, it is so like Dabrowski's definition of overexcitabilities. It's quite chilling. <laughs> it's like, wow, how do you come up with two things so independent that read so similarly? So with that in mind, let me just say that openness to experience is one of the five factors in what's commonly known as the five-factor theory of intelligence or the big five. The idea behind the five-factor theory is that there are five continuum that describe personality and that each individual's combination of those five continuum pretty much defines how their personality manifests. Those five areas are openness to experience versus being closed to experience, neuroticism versus emotional stability, conscientiousness, versus impulsiveness, agreeableness versus uncooperativeness, and extroversion versus essentially introversion. So of those five continuum, it's openness to experience that really seems to have the closest direct parallel to overexcitabilities. It also has the closest relationship to crystallized intelligence and to a lesser extent, fluid intelligence. So crystallized intelligence is the stuff we've learned essentially, and fluid intelligence is our capacity, our raw capacity for learning. And so when I read the two definitions, McRae's definition and Dabrowski's definition, I thought, oh, well, here it is. Finally, at last, we have something from the field of psychology that completely validates what Dabrowski was saying about overexcitabilities. And that's very much the tenor of my chapter and off the charts, showing the overlap that I saw between the two and saying what we have here are two ideas, which, while they're not exactly the same, they're reaching towards the same end and they are um, close enough that we can use openness to experience to say, it's time to turn around and look back at what we've done on overexcitabilities because there seems to be more there than many people thought met the eye. Um, And so that first paper was just a review of literature. That was good enough as far as it went. But then those two other articles that you were referencing, Chris, came out uh, and their approach to it was so different. Um, saying that we no longer needed Dabrowski, that Dabrowski was invalidated. And I thought, well, that's really missing the point because while the two ideas, openness to experience, being curious about the world, um, seeking knowledge and experience for experience's sake, whether it's in the outside world of going places and doing things or the inner world of imagination and introspection and ideas, whether you're talking about one or the other of those, it's not exactly the same as what Dabrowski was talking about. So I thought there really needed to be more time spent delineated where they were the same and where they were different.
0: Um, I actually found your paper really interesting. And the table where you compare the two, where you compare openness to experience and overexcitability actually really helped me make sense of both of the the frameworks together. Um, And for me, it looked like and I might be wrong, so feel free to correct me, that overexcitability was more trait-based and openness to experience was more behaviour-based, so how that kind of manifests out in the world. And to me, it's just like, oh, okay, so you're just looking at similar things from two different perspectives and if you put those two things together, it gives you a better picture of things. So I'm a bit miffed about the whole you know, one invalidates the other, because I think by comparing two things that are alike, it actually gives you more understanding of it. Um, So that was one thing I really appreciated in your paper that you actually compared them rather than saying, well, one knocks the other one off the perch.
2: Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. I love the way you described it, one being trait based and one being behavior based, because one of the key differences, I think, between the two are the paradigms from which they come in psychology. Um, The big five is very much personality psychology and it is how personality manifests and how it develops um, and, and things like that. Dabrowski, as a clinical psychiatrist and a developmental psychologist, was more interested in the implications of having those traits right? When do they work well for you? When do they not work so well for you? How do we help people become better adjusted to the traits that they have and help them work towards their advantage? Um, And then also, how do these traits develop and manifest over time? Or how do they contribute to development in other areas? And I think one of the other key differences between the two theories that's particularly important is the treatment of values where in the big five and in openness to experience, values is considered a personality trait. Whereas Dabrowski always considered values as a developmental trait, as something that would grow and change over time. And that's very much built into his theory of positive disintegration, Um, similar to Kohlberg, Maslow, Perry, and other people who dwell in the area of Um, ethical or value-based development.
1: You just made me think that it's important to say that you did go on to write that paper about personal epistemology and it's really good. There's so much that I've taken from your work in recent years and that's one of them. In that personal epistemology paper, you make the case without making it explicitly for like a difference between unilevel and multi-level perception of reality and in epistemology and in one's thinking about the world and how they understand it. And so, um, you know, there's so much to Jabrowski's theory. And I think that that's what was so upsetting to the, those of us who study it when those papers came out in 2016. And I absolutely don't mean for this to become like a bashing session on them, but it's, but it's worth stating. I know that we have a lot of listeners who were upset by the idea that a paper can come out and displace something that's been so important to so many people. For all of these years and what's interesting to me now like that I do clinical work with people is that I've never had anybody come to me and really want to talk about openness to experience. People come to me with this enthusiasm about discovering this whole framework for understanding themselves and the struggles that they've had and this overreactivity that they have to everything that is so hard to live with. And I don't think that openness to experience as a construct captures the experience of reality like overexcitability does. It's just not
2: there. It's not designed to. And that's another one of the key differences is that openness to experience, while it's called openness to experience, it's actually designed to describe a full continuum from being very close to experience to being extremely open to experience. Dabrowski focuses on the high end of that. So he's only looking at what we, what you might call under other circumstances, extremely open to experience. So, and in the paper, I make the parallel, just as there's a field that studies the whole continuum of intelligence, we in gifted and talented education, focus at this extreme end of intelligence and achievement and look exclusively at that. And I think that's a very close parallel to what we're talking about here. The research on openness has just begun to touch upon the consequences of having extreme, and you don't find much research at all on extreme openness as a phenomenon. So I do think that there's a lot of opportunity for crosswalk between the two theories that would help each. And in the name of not doing article bashing, I do think that those articles were a really helpful wake up call to the people who want Dabrowski to thrive and want to see the research continue and want the research to be of quality and for it to be respected. There are some things that it pointed out that require some attention. For instance, in my article, in my research part of the article, I take a new look at how to score the overexcitability questionnaire um, because we do have to be able to define the difference between being open and being over something. Um, and even Dabrowski in his own writing says that's a hard line to draw between being excitable and being overexcitable. So, when I scored the overexcitability questionnaire two for my research study, instead of using average scores, and averages kind of lie because there's always a bottom tail that you have to account for in the scores, I used a cutoff. So, there was an absolute minimum below which you could not be considered overexcitable. So I got rid of that bottom tail and dealt only with people who were clearly above average on the overexcitability questionnaire too. That was one thing that I thought we really needed to address. And then there are also some areas of the big five and some areas of overexcitability that I think we get to look at in a different light as a result of having both bodies of research that we can look at together. So... Um, While well, I was as surprised and a little disconcerted at the approach that they took, I think that in the long run, we can see a great benefit from being sort of prodded into new lines of research as a result of having those articles.
1: I completely agree with you. And I wanna say that personally, I'm, I've become grateful for them, honestly, because they forced me to dive deep in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise in order to really understand, because when I I mean, I came to this stuff at the time that those papers were coming out, really, I had just discovered overexcitability in like 2014, but I didn't really start deeply even thinking about it until 2015. And so I was still pretty new to it. And these papers came out and I thought, well, I need to figure this out for myself. And so it led me on this whole path. And if they hadn't come out, I don't think I would have had to dive in as deeply and I wouldn't have come to some of the conclusions that I've come to by being forced to do that. I was just thinking this week about how when I came to all of this, I just assumed that Michael was right. And that, for instance, there was a real difference between overexcitability and ADHD. And that's another thing that I ended up digging into really because of these articles. And so um, it is kind of interesting to me how we can be grateful for things that even felt like
2: difficult at the time. And you brought up another area that I've sort of taken a different look at as a result of those articles and digging back into the research, digging back into um, the wonderful compilation of Dabrowski's translated works, Chris, that you've managed to compile. Uh, and I'm thinking about a particular article by Dr. Limont who's done a lot of work in Poland. She does wonderful work on overexcitability, but she also did a translation of one of Dabrowski's articles on creativity. In that article, he talks about different combinations and permutations of overexcitability leading to different areas of expressed ability. And that led me back to thinking about the big three, that people talk about that if, if you're not if you're gifted, you must be high in intellectual, emotional, and imaginational overexcitability. But that's not what Dabrowski said. You know, he said you could be talented in different areas with different combinations, but it was always a combination. It was never just one overexcitability by itself. And so that led me to think that we needed to start looking in the research about how many overexcitabilities people had because in some ways it's the combination of those overexcitabilities that makes them both very fruitful and very challenging. In my research study, I not only did I use the cutoff score, I also took a look at the number of students who had zero, one, two, or three or more overexcitabilities. The way that you're looking like your research from different angles,
0: uh, very interesting because there's a bit in your article where you talk about Dabrowski's original questionnaire that's been since lost and it had like a hundred questions on it. So it was obviously like very comprehensive and I think it's exciting that you're rather than looking at how things are and saying, well, we've just got these questions or this tool's faulty, like exploring different ways of doing this research to try and like figure out maybe how it was originally done or, or to get new insights because clearly there's been stuff that's been lost um, and we're never going to recover it so I think it's good that you were sort of doing those comparisons because I found it really interesting and in the stats of people who had like combinations and particularly when you have all five.
2: Yeah that's kind of alarming when you think about it isn't it to think uh, all that's going on inside of that milieu of five overexcitabilities.
1: Another one thing that i Found interesting too is because I saw you present, I think, three times about this before the paper came out. And one of the things that you just don't see in the gifted literature on overexcitability is the acknowledgement that not everybody who's gifted is overexcitable, and not everybody who has overexcitability is gifted, and that we really need to move away from this. Idea that they're synonymous because they're not necessarily synonymous. And it's possible to even be profoundly gifted and only have kind of intellectual overexcitability. And that's something that I really became clearer to me when I was looking at the data at the GDC and looking at IQ scores of extremely intelligent, profoundly gifted in IQ children who otherwise don't have overexcitability, other than that one intellectual.
2: So the question in my mind now is proportions, right? Because in my study, which was a study of highly gifted middle school students um, attending a charter school, so you had to have you know two or three standard deviations above on an IQ test, and then some other criteria as well. How many of those kids had multiple overexcitabilities? How many had a couple? How many had none? Um, and In this one sample, and again, you know, replication is everything in social science, but in one sample, about a third of the kids had three or more overexcitabilities. That's a lot of kids. Then there was about another 20% who had two. There were nine kids in the sample who had no overexcitabilities and were not high in openness to experience at all. So now the, the question to me really is what proportion of kids have those multiple overexcitabilities in combination with advanced intelligence, which does seem to me to be very different cognitive territory than a child who would have one or two overexcitabilities. So, you know, what's the life experience of those kids? What kinds of uh, intervention do they need, if any, to help adjust to those? And Dabrowski is also very clear in his writing that part of what causes Positive maladjustment or some form of maladjustment is the conflict between overexcitabilities who are both trying to get the upper hand psychically uh, and how to, you know, having people, helping people learn how to reconcile the presence of multiple excitabilities, overexcitabilities, which can be very challenging. The other thing that was really interesting to me was that when I did the analysis and I took a look at the kids who had zero, one, two, or three or more overexcitabilities and looked at their openness to experience scores to see, you know, is it strictly a linear relationship? What does it look like? And what I found was that students with zero, one, or two overexcitabilities had very similar levels of openness to experience that you would expect of other children of that age. And they weren't very different from each other either. But when you looked at that group with three or more overexcitabilities, it was like a J curve. The openness to experience scores also shot up. Now, interesting to us as educators and psychologists and people who are helping professionals who care about how these children grow and become thriving adults. Openness to experience, as I said earlier, is related to measured intelligence, particularly crystallized intelligence, but also fluid intelligence. It is not as directly related to school achievement. There is another factor in the five factor model called conscientiousness, which tends to be more strongly related to school achievement. Now, of course, we know that school achievement is a very different thing from intelligence because tied into school achievement are things like behavior and attendance and organization and other traits like that. So it was very curious that while this group of students with high levels of overexcitability and high levels of openness to experience did not have above average scores on conscientiousness. Why that doesn't surprise surprised. me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah just speaking from my own experience of it huh
2: there's a whole literature around conscientiousness and academic achievement um and it has some relationship with intelligence just like openness has some relationship to academic achievement but they really are reversed in their strength and there's this whole conversation on the conscientiousness side saying well is is grit just renamed conscientiousness If I can just take this a step further in our current conversation in gifted education about gifted education versus talent development, it really makes me think, you know, what we're really addressing in the field right now are perhaps two really different kinds of students. There are these kids who are highly open to experience. This is connected to creativity and with creative productivity, the, you know, quirky iconoclasts and then the very studious high achievers who by virtue of sheer will and hard work managed to do really well in school and how the field can embrace both of these. I don't think we need to really choose one or the other. I think there's room for us to care about and support and nurture both groups, but how they're really different sets of students. And in fact, I have a quotation I'd like to read you from off the charts if I can. This actually was something that was said in an interview when there was a conversation, actually Stephanie Tolan and Patty Gatto Walden had this conversation with a group of UNASA students and they were asking them about their experience of giftedness and what it was like. And it just strikes me as being very appropriate to this comparison. So this is a early high school student speaking when she says, I started ninth grade when I was 12 and there was another girl a couple of months older than me, who was also starting ninth grade. The main difference between us was that she was working really, really hard to maintain good grades at the ninth grade level at age 12. She was having a real struggle. She was constantly having to do homework. She had to put in a ton of effort. Whereas I was sitting in my classes daydreaming because I still wasn't being challenged because the way traditional education is taught, it doesn't really hold my attention. And so I always thought there was an extreme difference between us seeing this girl's experience compared to mine when we were at the same age and in the same grade. I didn't really understand much about giftedness then, but even at that point, I thought this doesn't really seem like the same experience. To me, that's the difference between the highly conscientious child and the child who's open to experience. Or, as we think, perhaps the child who's got multiple overexcitabilities.
1: That was a wonderful example. Thank you so much. And it actually goes right along with the question that I have, which is, how can we use both overexcitability and openness to experience together to better understand the inner experience of giftedness, or even I would argue it's important to acknowledge that it exists, period. Because I think that it often gets lost in conversations about high achievers, that on the other side of that, there is a, an experience of being extremely intelligent and gifted, especially if you also have overexcitability.
2: Well, I think we need to do more research to see if what I found bears out that there is this subset of highly gifted kids who have multiple overexcitabilities, that it's related to openness to experience, and that that does suggest a different viewpoint on the world. When we think then about the consequences of that or the implications of that, one of the things I think about is, and this is gonna sound weird, but it goes back to how we measure these things. In order to get a high score, either on an overexcitability questionnaire or on an openness to experience questionnaire, you can't just be high in one aspect. Like on the overexcitability questionnaire, you can't get a high score by being just high on intellectual overexcitability. You can't get a high average score on the total questionnaire. Similarly, on an openness to experience, if you only have a high score in one, part of openness, say, openness to ideas, you can't get a high score. You have to get a high score across multiple facets. So that suggests to me that this inner experience is multifaceted and that that's really important for us to consider when we think not only about the child's intellectual curiosity, but also when we think about their social world when we think about how they are approaching their universe, as it were. So I think that that lends to a different way of considering these children and their needs as they grow. To me, that makes perfect sense to look
0: at the difference in experience to people that have particularly all five Overexcitabilities. Because if you translate that to a real life experience, so say you're a person who's highly overexcitable and you have someone yelling at you, whether or not you're a child having a parent shout at you or whether or not you're an adult having your partner yell at you in anger, if you're open to a lot of sensory input, it's going to feel really loud. You're going to be taking in every detail on their face. If you're overthinking it, your mind's going to be whirring with every insult that they throw at you. Um, If you're highly emotional, obviously it's going to impact you very deeply, maybe to the point where you're having a physical reaction like you want to throw up. Um, And if you're highly imaginational, you're probably thinking, this is the end, I'm doomed, worst-case scenarios, and your experience of, of that is going to be far more deeply impacting than someone that doesn't have have all five of the overexcitability. So because life experiences are complex, layered things, they're not just, you know, you're touching on to your intellect only or you're touching on your imagination only. They impact you from all different directions.
2: And then, you know, we also get into this whole conversation about things that are um, impactful, talking about gifted students as a whole versus a subset of gifted students. Um, and a lot of the research I found you know, it said that most gifted people have at least one overexcitability, but as Chris was suggesting, you know, that certainly can happen, but that's gonna be a lot easier to adjust to than having two, three, four, and five. And even if we only found that a very small subset of gifted students had say four or five overexcitabilities, I still think that that's important for us to acknowledge and research and understand again, from the psychological perspective, so that we can help those people adjust, use those overexcited abilities to advantage where they can, uh, how to regulate where necessary, so that they can be comfortable with what they've been given. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: It really does. And I mean, there's so much more to explore with this too. I can't help but think about, the connection with neuroticism and overexcitability. I mean, we really need to know more about how somebody with strong emotional overexcitability, well, and I would say imaginational too, like how they, I mean, Dabrowski talked a lot about the important combination of emotional and imaginational overexcitability. But I see in a lot of people that I know um, in different ways, like how hard it is to, to deal with neuroticism. And it's something that you can change. I know that I would say just personally, I used to be a much more neurotic. I'm, I know, even though I don't have scores, that I used to be much higher on neuroticism than I am now, because I've worked really hard in adulthood to not let my imagination run me or my emotions. And so these are things that you can change. But these are just areas that have been mostly unexplored when it comes to overexcitability, because there's been Well, there was for a long time this um, kind of drive or push to tie it with giftedness. Like there were so many studies done, as you know, in the overexcitability research to say, like they looked at gifted versus non-gifted groups and
2: we need to really look at so much more than that. There's so much more we still need to know. And, you know, I would say that, you know, when I talk to people who have concerns about the conversation about overexcitabilities One of the things that I hear is that parents of gifted students use overexcitabilities as a rationale for bad behavior. And I would say Dabrowski never intended that. You know, he definitely believed in regulating the behaviors and knowing when they were working to your advantage and when they were not. Um, But I would agree with that. If that's what people are saying online in different places, that we should try to be squelching that because that's not appropriate. And, and until we understand more about overexcitabilities from this perspective, from other perspectives, again, I think one of the invita- invitations that we've been given by virtue of the critical articles is to take a look at our practice. What is our instrumentation like? We've got one questionnaire. Well, they've got about 40 questionnaires of open, openness to experience. They've got so many questionnaires, it makes it hard to interpret the research sometimes. Surely, we could take a look at another way of measuring overexcitability to see what new perspectives we could gain on it um, from that respect. And again, you know, looking at cutoff scores, looking at counting and frequency counts as opposed to average scores, um, looking at the positioning of the overexcitabilities. you know, one of the things that's always been curious to me is that emotional overexcitability doesn't really show up in the literature the way one would think it would theoretically. And for me, that comes not just from reading Dabrowski's theory, but reading the biographies of scientists and historians and authors and you know philosophers who all talk about the passion for their work and how it's the passion that drives them forward. So you know now I'm thinking, gosh, maybe emotional overexcitability is kind of a latent variable that gets expressed through the other overexcitabilities, but we really not looked at what the possible relationship among them is. And I think that's another exciting opportunity for us moving forward. So I hope what this really does is launch a whole new, really interesting and vital time of research in overexcitability. And I hope we can continue to use the crosswalk between openness and overexcitabilities where there does seem to be definite overlap, definite differences, but areas of overlap that suggest that there is more for us to explore and to account for as we describe intellectual giftedness. Thanks so much. I Well, one thing I want to say is that I have found in my clinical
1: practice that there's still some utility for the open-ended overexcitability questionnaire. I have given it to a few of my clients so far. I put it in a Google Forms setup, and it's fascinating to me. I, I don't give it to everybody because um you know I have some clients who I feel like it would be it's too daunting for them to answer. I have a 24 item version online. But mm-hmm. some clients who I get especially um like Fiona Smith talked about in her episode is image free with A Fantasia. And so doesn't come out well on um, imaginational overexcitability with the OEQ2. But when I give this person the open ended version and say, describe, you know, your overexcitabilities in this way, I get this rich detail about the person and it gives me something to talk with my clients about when they take it like there's so much fodder there for discussion with clients when it comes to overexcitability, there's so much to work with. And I agree, we need to go further. And Frank Falk and I have talked about how we wish that somebody would think about measuring overexcitability from like a neurological or a physiological perspective, because I think that that would be fascinating. Just personally, you know, I have an Apple Watch and it's constantly, it feels like constantly giving me the um, notification that like my heart rate has gone over 120 beats per minute. And this will happen during times of conflict, like I'll be messaging with somebody and um, and getting like worked up about something. And, you know, my heart rate is that high and this is how I've always been. And I think that like, you know, the physiological responses are another interesting way to explore overexcitability. And that's what Dabrowski did too. I mean, he used a neurological exam.
2: That whole idea goes back again to the idea of being able to use, uh a crosswalk between the openness to experience literature and the overexcitability literature, with the idea being that uh, overexcitability represents some of the high end of openness to experience with a little bit of variation, which I can get to in a minute. But if we can say that overexcitability it represents a high end of openness in many respects, then we have at our disposal, this whole universe of research which is deep and broad, and it goes into the neurology and into hereditary factors. It goes into cross-cultural research. It looks at gender. It looks at whether openness to experience can be impacted by training, which as it turns out is very difficult to do. The few studies that look into changing somebody who is open to experience to make them more open show minor, minor shifts as a result of traditional interventions. And I haven't seen any research into uh, an intervention that turned somebody who was closed into somebody who was open. This also is going to have a real impact because we are looking at another body of research that takes a look at the relationship between measured intelligence and measured creativity and how openness to experience may in fact form a bridge between those two, between intelligence and creativity, that results in creative productivity, which, of course, is a critical variable for us to be looking at when we think about innovation, when we think about invention, when we think about creative productivity, when we think about the kinds of 21st century outcomes that we say that we are aiming for in gifted education.
1: Well, you just reminded me, Sheila, that one of the things that we can look forward to in the coming year or two, at least, is you know, that Michael has been working on translating this book um, in Polish from 1935, which has so much information. It's called Nervowacz Dzieci i Mojezi, which is um, nervousness of children and youth. And in it, I mean, there's a chapter on uh, like the heredity, the heredity of overexcitability where he talks about... Um, that it's not actually. Actually, he talks about the fact that it's not only hereditary. Like Dabrowski thought that you could have acquired overexcitability, and so there's really interesting new things that we'll be able to explore from this older perspective that gives us so much more insight into what he meant compared to what we've seen, you know, in his English work, which is just. I mean, it's like the tip of the iceberg compared to what you get from the Polish work. And so, you know, when you were just talking about that, it just struck me that, you know, there's so much to Dabrowski's conception of overexcitability that we haven't even explored yet because it hasn't been in English until now.
2: Yes. Yes, well, and I also think, again, that's the great gift that you're giving to people, Chris, in compiling these works, including some of the works that are very rare and hard to find now, it was, a great use to me to be able to go back into those original writings of Dabrowski and to reground myself in what his intention was around overexcitability. Um, I think that a lot of the misunderstanding about Dabrowski that's out there right now is because people read about Dabrowski and they don't read Dabrowski. And you know, the idea that what we've got here is somebody who is a developmental psychologist and we don't have many of those in the field of gifted education, and a clinical psychiatrist, and we have very few of those in gifted education, thinking about the experience of giftedness from their paradigms and trying to create um, helpful growth-oriented ways of looking at the experience. And also, like from the developmental perspective, looking at the optimal trajectory right? And what that looks like. Not that everybody is going to reach the highest level of those trajectories. Nobody reaches the highest level of Maslow's hierarchy either, but it does describe what the trajectory looks like if one were to think about that path.
0: It seems like it's a very, well, we know it's a very rich and complex field to be researching in, and I don't envy either of you having to do that task because as new information comes to life things shift Um, and even Sheila when you were talking about people when you were talking about people in history you know scientists and that who say they have this drive and passion but maybe they've learned to regulate that and they're not showing it on the outside so you're, you're trying to measure similar traits in people who even display them behaviorally different because maybe they have developed and learned to regulate those or to transform them. So it's almost like you guys are trying to measure quicksand.
2: That's true. And, you know, again, I, what, what fascinates me right now about the research in Dabrowski is that it's so much more robust in Europe than it is in the United States. Um, and I would very much like to see us getting a, to a little more quicksand here in the U.S. Because I think, again, there is legitimate criticism that some of the early research was either on small samples or the methodology perhaps wasn't as sound as it could be, but the contemporary research and overexcitability is much stronger with better sample sizes, more sophisticated analysis techniques, really more thoughtful and rigorous approaches that I think warrant more attention and more respect.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sheila. This was really incredible. And before we wrap up, I just want to say that it's exciting that you're president-elect of NAGC. (laughs) And I wonder, I mean, do you want to say something about, like, what are your goals for your term as president?
2: Well, I've got a year before I'm there yet, so um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But I would say that one of the things that Lori Kirsch, who's the current president, and I talk about consistently is something I made reference to earlier, that NAGC should serve as a broad umbrella where all dimensions of giftedness are welcome into the conversation. It's where we have the discussion and present the data and have the conversation about what seems to be the most um, important evidence-based information that we can work with when we are dealing with the lives and nurturing and education of young gifted and talented children. To me, that's really important that everybody understand that they're welcome at the table and into the conversation uh, because we are so far from the end of understanding of this phenomenon that we call giftedness or talent or both that I would like to see us all uh, practicing a little more openness to experience as we continue to do our own research and listen to the research of others.
1: Well, that sounds great. I mean, it really does. and honestly, just while you were saying that, it made me think that another area of exploration that we haven't seen when it comes to overexcitability and the gifted is twice exceptional children and adults. Yes. We need to know so much more about the two E experience of overexcitability, and it just I there's nothing yet, which is kind of astonishing to me. Although I believe that part of it is that you know people have misunderstood the connections with. Overexcitability and types of neurodivergence. And so, as we get some clarity around that, I think it'll get better.
2: I am very excited about the idea of gathering data on that and getting more clarity on the ideas that are emerging. Um, So, that would be something that's really, really exciting. In fact, I'll just circle back. One of the things that's popping up across all of these research studies is this relationship between psychomotor overexcitability and extroversion as it's measured in the five factor model. And that seems to be such an anomaly, extroversion and psychomotor, that it makes me think about both of those a little differently. How is extroversion being measured by the five-factor model that this kind of nervous jitteriness that is psychomotor overexcitability is captured there somehow? And psychomotor overexcitability, which doesn't always relate to openness to experience that strongly. What is its relationship to the other overexcitabilities. We know they factor well psychometrically, but in the real world, how should we be thinking about psychomotor overexcitability in relation to the other four?
1: Good question. That's, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was another interesting finding in your paper. There was so much there. I, I hope that, I feel like I've probably said this in other episodes, but I mean, I hope that some graduate students are listening and they're like, oh, well, I've got my dissertation idea now. Like, that I would hope so be really too. great.
2: Yes, I would be very excited by that. But I'd also like to put in a plug for the Dabrowski Congress this summer, because I think that will be a great opportunity for us to get this conversation going and um, and really think about what the agenda for the future of research into Dabrowski, not just over excitabilities, but the theory as a whole. I think this could be a really catalytic
1: moment for us. I agree. And if you come to the Congress in Denver in person, you can meet Sheila and I will be there. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been really incredible. I've been excited about this episode since we came up with the idea of the podcast, practically. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here and really am just so impressed with everything that you've done to put this and other things together, Chris. You've sort of been an inspiration.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I mean, I feel the same way about you. So again, with our mutual admiration society, but thank you. Right. And it's thanks to Emma too, that we have the podcast Absolutely. because where would we be without her? And yes, you know, you're a great host, Emma, and your technical expertise is invaluable.
0: So thank you. Thank you. Well, I blush and thanks, Sheila very much for coming onto the podcast because this has been great. I'm going to leave us all with a quote from your paper. Um, because I think this kind of sums up the whole idea of research and investigating Dabrowski. So in your conclusion, Sheila, you write, with respect to Dabrowski in particular, it is worth remembering that Abraham Maslow said of the theory of positive disintegration, I consider this to be one of the most important contributions to psychological and psychiatric theory in this whole decade. It digs very deep and comes up with extremely important conclusions endorsement from one of psychology's most eminent scholars is not the same as empirical validation. However, it might be enough to justify more investigation into what warranted such a resounding recommendation. Thanks, Emma. And thank you, Chris, for coming on the podcast as well. While we're thanking everybody, um, it's a pleasure as always. As always. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. Where would we be without you? if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, don't forget to hit those stars and give us a rating. And as always, if you have any questions, feedback or topics you would like us to talk about, please get in touch with us. You can email us at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking that path to your authentic self.